Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened before, welcome back. There's often more than enough stress in our own lives. But these days, it feels like we have much more than our own lives to worry about. There is so much going on out in the world that's worthy of our attention, our compassion, our support, and our engagement. And that caring, that give-a-shit factor, is a beautiful thing. It's how movements are perpetuated, it's how change is made, it's how we improve society as a whole. But there are also costs to our ever more connected, always on society, to the seemingly constant barrage of suffering that we're always just a few clicks away from. Repeated exposure to the pain of others, which is sometimes referred to as secondary traumatic stress, adds up in our system over time. It wears us down and it diminishes our ability to contribute in a positive way. So the trick then is to learn how to stay present, open, and engaged without, to quote today's guest, surrendering the ability to live fully. Today I'm joined by the founder and director of the Trauma Stewardship Institute, Laura Vandernoot Lipsky. Laura is the author of the wonderful books, Trauma Stewardship, An Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others, and her newest book, The Age of Overwhelm, Strategies for the Long Haul. So Laura, thanks so much for joining me today. How are you doing? Good. Thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, very much the same. Uh, before we started recording and when we were kind of planning this whole thing, you sent me some very old Just One Thing emails from Rick, and I was super touched that you were receiving them back then. And I'd like to just start by saying that you have a really fascinating personal story. And you've spent decades working in spaces where you're supporting individual people who have suffered immensely, and also engaging with systems that led to, or leading to, I should say, enormous collective suffering for large groups of people. Mm -hmm. And in your book, Trauma Stewardship, you share a pretty personal story toward the very, very beginning of it, where you talk about how that affected you over time. Mm -hmm. And so I was just wondering what the costs of that were for you and how you've learned how to deal with them. It's a great question. Well, and thanks so much to you and your dad for all the work you've done and for how long you've done it. Yeah, thank you. It has been years since I've uh, been following you both. So yeah, what happened for me was I started working in primary trauma work when I was 18. Yeah. And I did that work for a long time and had really no training in terms of any awareness of vicarious trauma. And mm. that was 34 years ago. And mm. there's a little bit more awareness now of vicarious trauma. But honestly, it's somewhat shocking still how seldom we talk about it and in yeah. still in even many of the fields that you would think. So certainly back then, we definitely were not talking about it. And so what happened for me was I did primary trauma work for years. And then I had, you know, my own near psychotic break. And that led me into doing more work around vicarious trauma. And even over the last several years, kind of widening, pitching that tent even wider to having a conversation about overwhelm. Yeah. And what we know about vicarious trauma is any human who is exposed to suffering, hardship, crisis, trauma of humans, other living beings, or ecologically what's happening on the planet, there's going to be a cumulative toll. But unfortunately, mm. in field after field after field, there's been this misinformation implicitly and explicitly communicated. If you're cool enough and tough enough and dedicated <laughs> enough, you're just going <laughs> to suck it up. And so that's, yeah. you know, that's, the misinformation I was indoctrinated into. It didn't end well for me. It doesn't end well for a lot of people. Yeah. So you've 
touched on a bunch of things there that I just want to loop back to through the course of this conversation. You, you said vicarious trauma. I said secondary traumatic mm-hmm. stress. We're kind of talking mm-hmm. about the same thing. Yes. Um, how does this show up for people? Like, what are the costs of this? Yeah, that's a great question. So we, when I wrote Trauma Stewardship, we came up with a trauma exposure response. And over the last mm-hmm. two years, that has grown significantly yeah. just with everything folks are navigating with the pandemic and then structural supremacy and the climate crisis and democracy is dissolving. And so we added to it. So some of the primary things that would be familiar to your listeners are a sense that you're never doing enough. So feeling like you're never doing enough, feeling like you always should be doing more, no matter how much you're doing, you never feel like you're doing enough. You always feel like you should be doing more. There's a sense of exhaustion, but not like, oh, I'm tired. And then I lifted some weights. I took a nap and now I feel good. This is like a soulful, tired, a spiritual tire, like your ancestors were tired people, tired. Um, There's a sense of, you know, minimizing. I think a lot of people can relate to minimizing. So, you know, you and your dad talk so much about gratitude and perspective, and this is not that. So gratitude, Mm -hmm. wonderful Mm -hmm. perspective, context, love it. This is where you start instead putting pain on a hierarchy and suffering becomes a competition. If later this afternoon, one of your listeners feels like, you know, they have a headache and then immediately a voice comes into their head, like, I'm not intubated in an ICU. What am I complaining about? Right. So it's like a really harsh voice Mm. that we usually do turn on ourselves first. Then we usually turn it on our loved ones. You know, if anybody comes to you and says they're having a hard day, you're just like, oh, really? Are you having a hard day? And then ultimately, (laughs) most of us who work in this field, we turn it on the people we serve, even if you're not explicitly Mm. saying that. But there's kind of that you're exuding a sense of minimizing cynicism. A lot of people can relate to cynicism, even if not like the cloud above your head cynicism, but cynical humor is, I mean, every field I work in is just, uh, there's a lot of cynical humor. Something I've been talking a lot about the last couple of years, because it really, I don't want to speak for other societies, but in the United States, we are really struggling with the negativity bias. I know this is something you and your dad have talked about that inability to assume well about others. Yeah. For sure. So we're seeing that throughout the United States. And then we see it, you know, you see it come up in people's workplaces and people's personal relationships, just that absolute inability to assume well about each other. So those are, I mean, those are some, there, there, there's a lot of them around the, <laughs> the circle that I imagine yeah, there's a sure. way that we can share that PDF and, and you could maybe post it on your site or something for your listeners. But there's a lot, but I think those are some of the ones that folks would really be able to relate to. I actually think that there's something about what you're saying here that's actually really provocative in kind of a way and sort of a pushback against certain kinds of the things you see come up in support communities sometimes. Mm -hmm. Because as you alluded to a moment ago, these symptoms that you're describing as symptoms of the vicarious intake of trauma are often held up as badges of honor for people who work inside of these fields, where if you don't think this way, you are just not grizzled enough or just Mm -hmm. not committed enough, or you haven't Mm -hmm. been around long enough until you finally Mm -hmm. realize that this is actually the way the world works and Mm -hmm. there are people starving in insert country and therefore, Mm -hmm. like, why are you complaining about your life? Right. And so you're pushing it back against that really strongly. You're saying like, no, these are not necessarily great ways to experience our own interior or great ways to relate to the outside world and doing mm-hmm. things that way limits our ability to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, part of what you're bringing up there and so well said is there's mm-hmm. a way that in the in like the fiber of organizations, agency, institutions and systems 
there's this martyrdom that can come. And I know it gets, that gets particularly tricky when I'm working with religious communities or folks who are religious, not all religions, but some religions that's, that's seen as noble, right? And part of what we want to help folks understand for anybody who does the work they're doing from a place of understanding that structural supremacy and systematic oppression is contributing to so much of the harm that we're tending to. So whether or not you're a public defender or you're a nurse or you're a public school teacher or you're a journalist, the legacy of oppression and supremacy is what's causing so much harm that we all are then trying to help tend to and repair the world. So if you believe that, then we understand we cannot be dismantling that oppression and supremacy out there and replicating Mm. it in our workplaces. Mm. And part of the way to your point that that it gets hidden behind in workplaces is this idea of if you are devoted enough, if you are dedicated enough, if the folks you're serving, the animals you're serving, the planet you're serving means enough to you, you're going to put your head down and you're going to suck it up. And mm. historically, this conversation about vicarious trauma has really been seen for the weaker set. And I think sometimes folks, unfortunately, go to this place like, well, obviously in the military, that's how they do it. Or obviously, like, that's what surgeons do. But this is every field I work in had been steeped in this misinformation and disinformation that that's not what it's about. Like, it's not about your intelligence. It's not about your devotion. It's not about how committed you are. If you're a human who is not completely completely internally disconnected, there are going to be consequences. It's an exposure issue. Mm. The way I do the work is not from a, I mean, and with respect, not from a self-care approach in terms of what most folks traditionally think of that. I really believe that our systems and structures where we do this work have a, and our movements as well, have a moral mandate and an ethical obligation to create sustainable environments where we mm. do the work. So whether you, you're you a real estate agent and you're a part of a movement or whether your full-time job is in social or environmental justice, those movements and those agencies, organizations, institutions, systems have this obligation, I feel, to create sustainable environments and not environments that are exploitive. I love that. I think that's a fantastic framing of the whole thing. And something that I think I heard you say this when I was listening to your TED Talk or it was a TEDx talk where you were you were speaking to a group of people who worked in, in primary support. I think that it was a correctional context or something like that, just to give. It was a correctional facility. So it was both okay. women who live in that facility and mm-hmm. are detained there. And then it's the folks who work in that correctional facility as well. Yeah. So that's super helpful context for this, where you talked about the ways in which uh, there's a siloing effect that happens, talking about the role of organizations in this, where often people who are having these symptoms, whether it's that you're working in an environment with other people who are primary caregivers, or you've just selected social groups and cultural mm-hmm. groups that you surround mm-hmm. yourself with who are also mm-hmm. people who care deeply about these issues, as well they should. Um, mm-hmm. So the the symptomology that you're describing mm-hmm. shows up inside of the whole population, so the whole population kind of normalizes around it both in terms of the coping mechanisms and in terms of the lionization of it that you're describing mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, for me, was a really interesting point that I had never thought about it, mm-hmm. so it was super helpful for me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting reading that up because it's something that I'm talking about many times a week right now with mm. groups I'm working with is part of what's happening is it's getting, it, to me, it's getting even more concerning because what I'm hearing from like every field I'm working, every country I'm working right now, 
when we talk about how I'm trying to support folks and having awareness about the harm that's coming to them as a result of this exposure, and we want folks to be proactive, we want folks to be preemptive about it. And what I keep hearing from colleagues out there is like, Laura, obviously I'm depressed. Everybody I work with is depressed. Obviously I'm anxious. My entire team is anxious. Yeah. And then it goes from there. You know, it's it's part of what is really unnerving right now is how many of our colleagues are having suicidal ideation. There's rising yeah, suicide sure. rates amongst our colleagues. And so on the one hand, I appreciate the interruption of isolation around it and, you know, anywhere we can have humor around it. But the idea that somehow now we're taking comfort in like, well, yeah, uh, like obviously we're all depressed, anxious and navigating suicidal ideation. That's not what we're going for. I mean, that's not what we're going yeah, for in social totally. justice. It's not what we're going for in environmental justice. It's not what you're going for if you are in any of the fields, like it, whether you're a flight attendant or whether you're in the military or whether you're an activist, like that's not what we're going for, right? And I think mm -hmm. part of what happens is because we put our heads down and because, again, pre-pandemic, nobody was in a state of nirvana then, I don't think either. But the last yeah. couple of years with the pandemic and the climate crisis and all the structural supremacy and oppression surfacing, not new, but continuing to surface, democracies dissolving. I think part of what's happening is folks are drowning in the sense like there's not an end in sight with any of those things, right? And then there's people's yeah. personal lives, which usually don't feel like spa-like atmospheres. Yeah, and then absolutely. people have big jobs, you know, whether yeah. you're running a restaurant or you're doing one of these, you know, so-called helping professions. And so I think that's, that's part of, you know, what you're talking about is like when we get used to it and then you look around and you're like, well, yeah, yeah tell me something I don't know, right? Yeah. But I think that's where we need to like really pull back from that and reassess. Totally. And one of the major points that you make in the reframe that you do in the age of overwhelm is that we've gotten to this place in the culture. And I actually think that that, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think that book was written in 2018 or 2019 or something like that. Yeah. And it just feels so, so prescient for mm -hmm. everything that's come after the last couple of years and mm -hmm. is really more relevant than ever, is mm -hmm. that we've gotten to this place where empathic overwhelm, secondary trauma, trauma exposure response, all these things aren't just present for the helping professions, everybody mm -hmm. is feeling a little overwhelmed right. to some degree. And right. so I'd love to just kind of broaden it out here a little bit and ask you about how that often shows up for people and what are some of the mm -hmm. kind of common things that tend to trigger that secondary trauma response for people, even if they don't work in the helping professions. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting what you're sharing because because what I listed before, none of that's exclusive to helping professions. So I think, I mean, yeah. you know, that feeling like you're not doing enough, feeling like you should be doing more. The way I talk about that is in terms of internalized depression. So again, not talking about any other society mm. in terms of this, but I know in the United States, part of the way that oppression takes mm -hmm. root is you have historically marginalized, oppressed, underserved groups come to believe about themselves that they're not enough. Right. So yeah. that is available to anybody, even if they're they don't consider themselves in you know one of these fields or professions. It can get harder depending on your industry, because then if you have if you're navigating your own internalized oppression where you never feel like the essence of who you are is enough. Right. You've been raised to believe you're not black enough. You're not gay enough. You're not whatever enough. And then you're in a field where there's a frenetic scarcity based sense of we're not doing enough. We should be doing more, even if it's from a well-intentioned place. You can imagine how fraught that gets. Yeah. Part of what I could have never foreseen doing this work back in the day was that 
there's so much commonality. And so mm -hmm. I change the language when I'm working with a public health worker versus somebody who's doing refugee assistance versus at a librarian, but it's the same manifestations. And mm -hmm. it's very mm -hmm. similar manifestations, even if you are like an organic gardener, <laughs> you know, like, and yeah. so it's not, and I, that's something I could have never predicted. And I think that's in part why I've wanted to use this language more of overwhelm. And then I was talked in by my daughters to doing a podcast and the podcast is all about interrupting isolation around overwhelm. And so it really is, as you're saying, it's very inclusive in terms of yeah. who's affected by this. <laughs> yeah. So that's the problem, if you will. That's the challenge that we're facing, mm -hmm. which is there are all of these things that we want to stay engaged, involved, invested in to support them in a positive way. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's a cost associated with doing this. And mm -hmm. I just absolutely loved this sentence from Trauma Stewardship, which was, I had to find some way to bear witness to trauma without surrendering my ability to live fully. Mm -hmm. And I think that that just encapsulates the whole thing, right? You're staying present with it, mm -hmm. but you're not surrendering your own ability to live fully because we get questions all the time from people, emails all the time mm -hmm. from people saying something along the lines of, I want to support people. I want to live my own good life. I want to be helpful out in the world. I want to be happy and loving with my family. And yet there mm -hmm. is some aspect about what's going on right now where I feel wrong for doing that. I feel selfish mm -hmm. for doing that. Mm -hmm. I feel disengaged mm -hmm. if I do that. I feel borne down by the problems of the world. Mm -hmm. And so you've dedicated a, a lot of time and thought and effort to figuring out how to hold those two things in your hand at the same time. So I'd love to mm -hmm. talk a little bit about just your broad framework of trauma stewardship and how you mm -hmm. think about that, and then mm -hmm. move into some of the practices and processes that you've developed around how to help people live with that. Yeah, I mean, it's a beautiful question for us. And I, I mean, I, I'm the first to say, I don't think anybody's ever been more out of their mind in regard to all this than I've been. So I come at it, as I've shared, like not conceptual, not from a theoretical place, but yeah. as somebody who's like been so past the brink and uh, yeah. have spent a long time trying to come back from that. So all of that is to say it's, I think it's a lifelong process. And I think there are folks who have not elected to go into work that gives you that extra exposure and simply the trauma that you're wading through anyway in your life gives you that exposure. And then again, there's the bearing witness part. So you can survive your own primary trauma. Then there's the bearing witness part of just everything unfolding in society and the world. And then there are those of us who have also chosen to go into professions where we knew we were going to have this exposure. And I think part of the framework and part of the paradigm goes back to what you and I were talking about in terms of this work for me has always been rooted in larger context of structural supremacy, systematic oppression, and understanding that. So if one believes that, then we really need to pay attention, as Desmond Tutu says, your means must be consistent with your ends, right? Like you just cannot be focused on dismantling out there and replicating it in how we proceed, which means being overdeployed, operating from mm -hmm. a place of scarcity, um, you know, really uh, in any way not treating each other with ethics and integrity, mm -hmm. right? So that just doesn't work in, in that regard. The other piece that's just a reality, and I'm always happy to just 
share myself as an example with this is it doesn't end well. Like it's not sustainable. That that's mm-hmm. the other piece of it. So like taking it away from some, you know, it's like so noble, like it's just not sustainable. Right. Yeah. So if one is not able to focus on gratitude, I mean, I don't care if you use the language of gratitude. Some people love that language. Some people feel like it's new age bullish. Like I don't care what language you use, but everybody's ancestors survived in part because they had an ability to focus on what was going well, right? So if you are surviving your own big waves of life, if you are noticing what's going on in the world, and if you're doing any kind of work and caretaking, like there's there's work in a field, but there's also the endless numbers of caretakers in our society who we don't pay attention to. Parents, yeah. you know, your partner is ill, you're taking care of your mom who's got early onset Alzheimer's, all that caretaking. If we're not simultaneously paying attention to what's going well, you will not be able to continue to do what you're doing and it will not end well. If we're not able to stay connected with a sense of awe, I know this is something you and your dad have talked about and the research around awe is really interesting. Again, that's connected to gratitude, but it's also you know what we talk about in terms of bottom-up brain processing and neuroscientists talk about is being able to like, you're not just looking at a cherry blossom tree that's blooming. You actually are noticing it and taking it in. You know, there's mm-hmm. all these ways that if we're not pulling in life force from our surroundings, right? And that can be an animal, that can be an oak tree, that can be a human, you just won't be able to sustain. So I think whether or not you want to approach it from the ethics and the integrity around oppression and exploitation, or you want to get much more concrete about like, oh, hang on a second. I'm actually not going to be able to sustain and take care of my child who has autism if I don't figure out some practices to care for myself, right? I'm actually not going to be able to continue and to serve as a firefighter if I don't figure out how I'm going to like get my feet underneath me here. I forget the first time that I heard this particular phrase, but it's you can't pour water out of an empty cup. Mm -hmm. And you just see that over and over again inside of this space. Yeah. My partner, Elizabeth, is training to be a somatic psychologist with an emphasis on Mm -hmm. trauma work. And so she's in her practicum right now. So she's sitting with clients, a lot of people. And I was talking with her a little bit before this conversation around like, hey, this is the person that I would be talking to. What Mm -hmm. are are you thinking about with this stuff? And she just kind of shook her head and said, man, like, if we could have it be this way, I just feel like everyone needs a week off every couple of months for starters, Mm -hmm. just the opportunity Mm -hmm. to unplug and to return to yourself and to be able to connect with these larger mm-hmm. forces that you're talking about and and mm-hmm. forge a deeper sense of relationship. But of course, mm-hmm. we have systems set up that make that very challenging to do. Right. Well, it's interesting you're bringing that up too, Force, because it's with the podcast, the name of the podcast is Future Tripping. And part of the reason we titled it is that is, and again, you and your dad can speak to this much better than I can, given your extensive training in Buddhism and whatnot. But the idea that there's all this that's so hard that's arising in life and that there are additional layers of suffering that we invite in by living in the future, right? And by not being present. And the first guest we had on the podcast is Ed Young, who some of your listeners will know. So Ed Young just won the Pulitzer Prize for explanatory journalism, writes with The Atlantic. He's been a journalist for a long time. And I mean, I think he's one of the most exquisite journalists in terms of being able to really honor the dignity of the folks who he's covering. And he's been covering the pandemic since before the pandemic was the pandemic. And 
one of the things he talked about is exactly what you're saying, where he really shared in a very vulnerable way on the podcast, how he used to be able to take a small amount of time off and come back to journalism and it would carry him for a long time. And now he is coming to terms with that. He might not be able to do certainly pandemic Mm. reporting much longer because the amount of time he's needing to take off to be able to then have the capacity to continue reporting in the way he wants to is much greater. And to your partner's point, like it just, most people, I mean, Ed and I have privilege in that we can step away. There's a lot of folks who just don't have that ability. And, and we just, I just interviewed Michelle Storms, who's one of the leaders with the ACLU. And she brought up something which is connected to what you're talking about in terms of the larger systemic piece of this. What she has realized is look, the reality of the ACLU is you are working with over-the-top, dedicated, devoted, fire-in-the-belly people. And the idea that you as a leader can just be like, take your time off. No, really, go take your time off. And think people are going to do it. It's just not going to happen like that. And what she does, which I think is so wise, is she, you know, she's the head of the Washington State ACLU. She'll just shut the whole office down for a week, 10 days, two weeks. And she knows that if she, again, not to take away people's personal sense of agency and how we all, as Stevie Wonder says, <laughs> need to handle our own business. So I don't want to take that away. But she has found that when you work with folks who have that level of commitment and care, you've got to do something structurally. And so what she does is she gives people these really big chunks of time when everybody is off. Because I think we all yeah. know that experience where you're trying to take time off and then, you know, somebody's like emailing you or you've got that boss who emails you at three in the morning and they're like, no, I don't expect you to reply. This is just when I'm super, you know, creative. So the idea, like, <laughs> let's just shut it all down so yeah. we can then come back and have some sense of being, you know, with capacity as opposed to just drained and broken. Moving yeah. into the practice part of this conversation, essentially, Taking little opportunities for yourself to unplug from some mm-hmm. of the conversation, some of the discourse around topics that are very charged for you mm-hmm. is a huge resource. And I definitely mm-hmm. find for some of my friends, for instance, I, I have a close friend who's very involved both in his own life and, and just being aware of the broader conversation around issues of violence against Asian Americans that are mm-hmm. going on right now. And mm-hmm. He recently shared a Facebook post where he was like, I had to mute these 15 people that I follow who write about mm-hmm. this work because I was just getting so mm-hmm. overwhelmed by it that I started to feel mm-hmm. uncomfortable walking home from work. He lives in San Francisco mm-hmm. and it was just becoming overwhelming for me. And so I just needed to take a break. But at the same time, in doing that, I felt this sense of like guilt, maybe is I don't want to put words mm-hmm. in his mouth, but sure, essentially sure, sure. A, yeah. a feeling of guilt associated with that mm-hmm. around the act of disengaging. Is that something that you've seen in people that you've worked with? And how have you kind of helped them through it? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, you yeah. and I could spend an entire year talking about this subject sure. alone. Yeah, <laughs> I think part of what, again, that I try to support people and recognize, look, I'll say this, there's nobody I work with who has a lot of time, energy, capacity, or cash, right? So people who have like a ton of time, a lot of cash, I usually try to muster, you know, like rustle up some additional practices for them. But anybody I'm working with, we're going for desperate times, desperate measures in terms of practices of how you sustain. So in that spirit, I spent a lot of time talking about our nervous system obviously like our nervous system podcast, a lot of people aren't seeing this, but our nervous system and then acknowledging like where you live has a nervous system, where your loved ones spend time has a nervous system, 
your workplace has a nervous system where you volunteer as a nervous system, mm, your community has that. a nervous system, yeah. your region, your gut. So there's your nervous system. And then there's all these nervous systems that are interwoven, right? And to be able to just continue to keep on keeping on, we need to make sure, and some of this work draws on Peter Levine's work who wrote Waking the Tiger, we have to understand how to make sure our nervous system and all these related nervous systems don't get to a place of saturation, Yeah. right? When we don't have conditions in place to metabolize, it's largely what I think about with trauma is like, how do you have conditions in place to metabolize? what you're experiencing, what you're bearing witness to. When we don't have those conditions in place, then it doesn't take long because of how this all works with our mind and body until we get to a place of saturation. And saturation is largely what you were talking about earlier, that circle, those manifestations come from. And as hard as that is, and as much as that sucks, humans don't stay saturated. What happens is we'll rupture. So sometimes mm. there's an internal rupture. If you're somebody who internalizes everything, sometimes there's external rupturing, right? And usually it's a combination. So I think most people can relate to that experience of feeling saturated and then the rupturing that happens individually, but also many people's homes have been rupturing, you know, during the pandemic, right? Many people's communities, certainly our society is, is absolutely rupturing. Okay. So then going back to what you're talking about in terms of very concrete practices, one of the easiest things that people can do for themselves is look around their day, take a micro moment, look around their, their life every day and just decide today what is any way today that I can refrain from unnecessary exposure, mm. right? Because there's all these things. I mean, unless a listener is living on a monastery and has like a very different life than we're talking about, there's a huge amount of exposure, whether or not it's your work or not. Yeah, so one sure. of the most self-respecting things you can do, and again, this doesn't take any time, any resource, take a microsecond, you look around your day, you think today, where can I refrain from exposing myself? that would otherwise unnecessarily jack up my nervous system. Okay, so going back to your friend, you know, four of the most concrete things are, if you're on social media, get off of social media. <laughs> if you're still gonna be on social media, be mindful of your platforms, duration, yeah. time of day, how you engage. Same thing with news. If you're following mm. the news, obviously, I mean, None of your listeners know me, but if you spend one second with me, you know, I'm not somebody who's going to tell you to not engage with like social justice, environmental justice, but the degree to which yeah. you are involved with social and environmental justice has nothing to do with the time spent on platforms and the time spent consuming the news, right? Yeah. So if you need to continue to know what's going on in there from a news standpoint, then we've got to figure out how you're going to do that in a way that is also sustainable, right? You're going to do that in a way where you're really intentional about your sources, again, time of day, how much vitriol comes with the news, all of that. So then, you know, with what your friend is sharing, a lot of people I work with will grapple with this idea that if I'm not continuously, constantly, just obsessively on these platforms, social media, or I have the TV on in the kitchen all the time, or I have every news alert coming up, somehow, you know, I'm a trader. Somehow I'm selling yeah. out, right? Somehow I'm not bringing what I need to to bear. And again, if we just take it back to neuroscience, you can not sustain your nervous system in the way you're going to need without having significant health consequences 
if you are number one, exposing yourself to such a degree that you can't recalibrate and number two, becoming saturated. And so I think that sometimes just helping folks, particularly when they come from that place of like, somehow I'm selling out and I should still be able to be on social media and see the news, helping them understand that there is no shortage of ways you can contribute to the repair of this world. And it is not tied to your presence on those platforms and with the news. And there can be small, you don't have to go like run your cell phone over in the parking lot, but even small practices, I talk all the time in my work about protecting your morning, right? Like when you first Mm, wake mm -hmm. up, don't reach for a portable electronic device. Give yourself a few minutes to come into a waking state before you get crushed by cortisol, right? Like that's, I mean, that's a very, very small practice, you know, but there's these other practices about like, okay, if I'm going to stay of this world, how am I going to do it strategically? And you know what you and your dad talk about all the time, intentionally, mindfully, deliberately. An aspect of that, which is another one of the ways that you talk about this, that I think is just radically helpful for people is a differentiation inside of your work between different spheres of control, Mm -hmm. including what you frame as a collective sphere of control. In other words, what we can do together, which I think is a great framing, because often we think in terms of what I can do and then what I can't do, this very binary, Mm -hmm. take care of your side of the street and then don't worry about what you can't control. And you also throw in Mm -hmm. this third sphere that I think is so important, what we can do together and the differentiation inside of that. And I think that was sort of implicit in what you're saying, is what are the things that you can't influence, you can't affect positively, you can't control, Mm -hmm. that are also causing you to bear a cost? Mm -hmm. Whether that's like excessive consumption of news media that's not serving you, or engagement with social media with people who just aren't gonna budge and you're engaging with them in a vitriolic way that's rising your own Mm -hmm. stress hormones, again, you waked out about the whole thing, becoming saturated, Mm -hmm. everything that you were talking about. Mm -hmm. And then focusing in on those fears of what I can do and then what we can do together. Pema Chodron says, death is certain. The time of death is uncertain. How do you want to spend your time? Mm -hmm. And I just think that if we can understand, which many of us understood before, but I think the pandemic has brought it to a whole new level of how fleeting everything is, how impermanent everything is. And there is so much that is out of control societally and so much is out of our control but we do get to make very intentional, mindful, deliberate decisions about how we want to spend our time. Mm. And I think when we are engaging, you know, something I try to ask myself all the time when I'm perseverating and obsessing is, you know, to what benefit, right? So like, if we can ask ourselves, like, to what benefit is engaging with this much hatred on the internet? Like, if death is certain, if my time of death is uncertain, <laughs> is this how I want to spend my time, right? Yeah. And, you know, similarly, we can have relationships in our life like that. We can think about, you know, the work we're doing in that regard. We can also just think about, you know, the treatment of people who we know or who we don't know, right? But they're part of what I think is very challenging and causes a lot of overwhelm, unless you're a completely enlightened individual, is how much is out of control. Mm -hmm. And so I think being able to come terms with what is out of our control and then really bring our focus to what remains in our control. And as you're saying, individually what that is, and then collectively what that is as well. And sometimes, you know, with what you're raising there for us is sometimes that requires part of what's hard about that is it requires a ton of grieving and a ton of mourning, 
right? Mm-hmm. Because it can mm-hmm. like people. I've I have never had this experience with social media, but a lot of people talk about social media. Like, remember when? Like, remember when Twitter <laughs> was fun? And remember when Instagram was awesome? And like, there's grieving and mourning there, right? There's yeah. a ton of grieving and mourning right now in relationships in terms of there's very very strained relationships, as you know. And so there's a lot of grieving and mourning there in terms of I thought I was on the same page with my best friend from high school, but then I'm hearing what they think about what's going on in Florida and Texas, and apparently we're not, right? So that requires grief and loss, right? There's grief and loss in so many people's jobs of like, you came in thinking your job was going to be this, and now it's this. So that those layers of loss that is part of how facing that is part of how you then tend to what you're talking about is like, what's in my control and what's out of my control. Yeah. Right. Is being able to just acknowledge that grief and loss. And that's very hard to do in our society because our society, there is such little support for grieving and mourning. So it's Mm. hard to do that then against this backdrop in our society. Yeah. I think that this is another one where we could spend a lot of time talking about this aspect of it, which I think is so central to just the whole thing. And I think for many people, an aspect of disappointment Mm -hmm. where I I think back to just relatively early on in the pandemic and Mm -hmm. all of the things that were going on with the protests with George Floyd and all of these many aspects where I think that there was a moment in time where People rationally or not had this feeling of great movement mm-hmm. that was happening. And then it's almost like sometimes you wake up 18 months later and you're like, well, wait a second, mm-hmm. what has moved really here? Mm-hmm. And that disappointment, I think, can be very challenging to reconcile for people. I mean, myself included from time to time. Oh, yeah. I mean, the layers of loss and how that connects with disappointment, I know what that's like. I'm like 52 and I am (laughs) often quite numb and like, you know, internally, whatever I'm doing with my internal landscape just to continue on. But I see it a lot through my daughters who are adolescents and just watching them navigate at that age, which is so heartbreaking, how to stay hopeful, how to feel Mm -hmm. like you do Mm -hmm. have a sense of agency, how to not get cynical, how to feel like there's anything you can do that's gonna have influence. And I think in part, that's why noticing anything going well is just, it's critical, right? Because it's most of us are so often in a reactive state, whether, you're a person of color and, and you're having to like navigate like every single second about how to stay safe and well, whether you're trans and you're just trying to like wrap your mind around the amount of like hatred coming your way, whatever it is, but like just being in a reactive state of just navigating life that the practice of, okay, also <laughs> we have made progress over here. Yeah. This is shifting over here, right? we have some hope swelling up over here. It's just, we're not going to be able to continue on if we're not able to also, you know, Jack Cornville talks so beautifully about that, right? Like the oceans of tears and then like the indescribable beauty and being able to hold all of that, right? I mean, that's what Buddhism offers so so wonderfully is that whole sense of equanimity, you know? But again, that takes effort. I mean, that takes focus. Mm -hmm. And when people are struggling with cognitive overload and just feeling like your brain is broken and it's really hard to get out of bed in the morning, you know, it can feel quite out of reach to continue to pay attention to what is going well, right? And so still being able to navigate the disappointment, as we say in early childhood education, have your big feelings about what happened with the protests around George Floyd and then what didn't happen, right? What's happening with the protests around 
Roe v. Wade and what's not. Like yeah. have your big feelings and then figure out how you're going to continue to keep putting one foot in front of the other. Talking about the keeping on, keeping on and the optimistic side of the whole conversation, I would love to ask you, what's something that you're kind of proud of these days? Oh, God. That's a good question. Uh, Sorry, just sprung that on you. But yeah, yeah some, something, no, something totally... you're proud of inside of your own work, something you're looking forward to, something I that you're optimistic it. about. Oh, that's fun. That'd be like a great little counseling session about how that doesn't even, like you asked that and I was like, <laughs> like <laughs> that just does not even compute. What a, what, a what a teachable moment right there, I would say, in general. Growth you know mindset, what I mean? Forrest, growth mindset, <laughs> beginner's mind here. Okay. Um, I mean, proud. Okay, I'm going to be a total pain in the ass for you and like reframe. I it. love I this. Mean, yeah. like, what I'm grateful for, what I'm like sure. psyched about right now yeah. is I am really enjoying how much I'm getting to work with young people mm. in general a lot right now, but also through this podcast. That feels to me like with some really bleak skies, like some rays of light coming in. That's awesome. Yeah. And yeah. speaking personally, if just as a 34-year-old, if you feel like you're hitting the point in your life where you're tipping into the the chronic cynicism side of the aging curve, if that makes sense, yeah, spend more time with young people. Mm -hmm. You know, spend some time with some very very cool te teenagers if you've got an opportunity yeah. to. I think that we have. I mean, we have such a discourse in the culture about the problems with the Zoomer generation or whatever. But mm -hmm. the truth is that these are by and large people who have not been beaten down by the many disappointments or whatever it is. So if you need a little refresh around some of those feelings, it can be really helpful to spend time with people who maybe have a slightly fresher perspective on things occasionally. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that, of course. And I think remembering to having like a wide array of practices where you can metabolize, yeah. right? And I think that Many of us are used to being very in our heads, right? And a lot of people are hyper-intellectual. And I think we just can't underestimate how critical it is that we have practices that are earth-based, as your partner knows so well, the somatic practices, and that we're doing things that we just give this a break up here, our minds yeah, and our brains, totally. and do things ideally outside would be great, but where you're actively metabolizing you know you're doing mm. what you can to get your heart rate up you're breaking a sweat it doesn't matter if that's playing the saxophone or it's chopping wood or it's dancing or it's boxing but you those feelings you're talking about for it like that those feelings of cynicism those feelings of disappointment those feelings of loss any of that that has to go somewhere and with all due respect to our minds and brains like that's limited, yeah, right? And totally. so one of the things that's so important is that we engage our breath. And I think that being able to engage your breath in such a way, we're also breaking a sweat. And we, you know, every 24 hours, we have some practice where we're able to have an intention of, you know, anything that's accumulated in my nervous system mm. over the last 24 hours, may it be fully released from my nervous system. So I have a chance at showing up for the next 24 hours and bringing an A game to what I'm doing. And I think, you know, like you're talking about, I mean, whether, you know, early 50s, me, mid 30s, you, like the young children I'm working with who are navigating this exhaustion and cynicism, knowing that like combining some sort of practices where you are able to move that rage, move that loss, move that guilt, move that sadness, move the shock that, I mean, there's so many things that are shock worthy and really move it out of your nervous system. So that's not something you're stewarding around. Yeah. 
Wow. I love that reflection. I think it's super helpful. It was helpful for me personally. And I also think that it's a great note to close our conversation today on. So Laura, thanks so much for taking the time to do this today. It was very personally useful. And I just really appreciate all that you're doing out in the world. Thank you, Forrest. I mean, really, thank you for you and all of your work and your dad and your family's work and the whole <laughs> the whole family squad. But thank you. It's really, this is a really very sweet and fun full circle for me. So thank you so much for having me. Today, I had a great time talking with Laura Vandernut Lipsky about how we can better manage secondary traumatic stress which, put simply, is the stress that we are exposed to when we interact with other people's stress. There is so much painful stuff going on out in the world these days that it's easy to become overwhelmed by it, even as we have the desire to remain engaged with it in a positive way. And I absolutely love this line from Laura's book, Trauma Stewardship. I had to find some way to bear witness to trauma without surrendering my ability to live fully. And that's really what we focused on today. How could we stay with it without surrendering the positives, the joy, the feeling in our own life? We started by talking about Laura's own journey. She was working as a caregiver and a supporter from a very young age, and that started to have an impact on her. Over time, there were costs associated with this, and she had to create a framework for bearing those costs more effectively. A trauma exposure response can take a lot of different forms, and some of the common symptoms are probably things that you're pretty familiar with these days. Feeling helpless and hopeless, hypervigilance, feeling like you don't have any creativity to expend in your own life, fear, guilt, overwhelm, a sense of persecution by other people, even little disassociative moments of different kinds where you find yourself just blanking out in the course of a normal day when you wouldn't have done that previously— that can also be a primary symptom. And these responses, these symptoms, are not just reserved for people who work in the helping professions. These days, everyone is experiencing them to some degree or another. And the extent to which somebody experienced these symptoms is typically directly correlated with how engaged they are in what's going on out in the world. Or, of course, if they're also part of a population of people who's experiencing a lot of persecution. Simply put, our repeated exposure to traumatic events of different kinds comes with consequences, even if we aren't the person who's directly undergoing the trauma ourselves. And this led Laura to the framework of trauma stewardship, which she describes as how we come to do this work, how we are affected by it, and how we make sense of and learn from our experiences. Throughout the conversation, we highlighted a variety of practices and frameworks and ways of being that can help people and support them in recovering from secondary traumatic stress, from reducing their exposure to it, and hopefully in making them more resilient overall. But talking about resilience for a moment, because, hey, it's the title of a book that I co-authored. I'm very into the idea of resilience. We have a cultural narrative that is heavily focused on grit, that if you care enough, if you are strong enough, if you can suck it up enough, you can get through just about anything. And that is a corrosive and dangerous and destructive cultural narrative. It is one of my least favorite ones. You can't pour water out of an empty cup. You can't just give and give forever. Nobody is that tough because it's not about toughness at all. Our bodies are built for short periods of intense effort and stress. 
and then long periods of rest and recovery. And we've really inverted that paradigm in our modern world. And that's why many of the practices that Laura named during this conversation are so essential. Whether that's not waking up with a smartphone in your hand, or it's taking a little bit of extra time to unplug, or it's doing a variety of grounding exercises where you reconnect with your somatic body and get a little bit out of your cognitive body for a minute. These are all practices that can return us to that space of rest and recovery that is so essential. Alongside that, Laura talked about a number of big frameworks. One of the ones that I really appreciated that she named is this idea that if we're going to dismantle systems of oppression and supremacy out in the world, we can't direct those same oppressive instincts towards ourselves. We can't hate on ourselves in the ways in which we are trying to reduce hate in the external world. You're a person too, so a great place to start is by being kind to yourself. Then alongside that, we can differentiate our spheres of control. What can I do? What can we do collectively? And what do I really not have a lot of influence over right now? And alongside that third sphere, the sphere of not a lot of influence right now, man, a lot of painful emotions live inside of that sphere. Grief, guilt, remorse, disappointment. These are all feelings that we have often a very difficult time interacting with because they're big, hard feelings. But often releasing the things that we have no control over allows us to reorient toward the ones that we do. And that's one of the ways that we can continue to stay present, even when we start to feel a little overwhelmed. I've included links to Laura's website in the description of today's conversation, And after we stopped recording, she really emphasized that the big thing that she wanted people to get out of this conversation was that there were other people who really cared too. There were other people who are doing this work, and there are resources that are available for people if you would like to have access to them. Two great resources are her wonderful books. That's Trauma Stewardship, an Everyday Guide to Caring for Self While Caring for Others, and her newest book, The Age of Overwhelm, Strategies for the Long Haul. She also has a wonderful podcast that she just started recently, and if you like being well, you will probably love Future Tripping, and I'll include that in the description of today's podcast as well. If you've been enjoying the show, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice, maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really helps us out. And hey, you can always tell a friend about it. It's one of the best ways that we have to reach new people. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a cup of coffee or two a month, you can support the show, and you'll receive a whole bunch of benefits in return. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.